0: Earlier this month, the House of Representatives passed the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, also known as the PRO Act, a piece of legislation that has been described as the most transformative labor law reform legislation in the last 50 years. I'm Amy Kottman, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. On today's episode, I'm thrilled to sit down with Peter Fisher, a partner in Baker Hostetler's Labor and Employment Group in Washington, D.C., and Christian White. Council in Baker Hostetler's Philadelphia office to discuss the PRO Act, legislation that if passed in its current form, will affect most every employer in the country and reshape the American workplace. Welcome to the show, Peter and Christian.
1: Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Christian. Looking
2: forward to it. Amy, it's great to be here, and it's wonderful to uh, sit down with my friend Peter and discuss the PRO Act.
0: For our listeners who may not be familiar with this legislation, Christian, can you provide a high-level summary of what is contained in the PRO Act?
2: Sure, Amy. The the, the PRO Act, or as its uh, official name, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, um, it, it is the most transformative piece of labor law reform legislation that we've seen in decades. And arguably, if passed and signed into law by the president, It would be the most significant labor legislation since the passage of the National Labor Relations Act in 1935. So to give you an idea of of what all the PRO Act covers, it it really involves almost every part of the employer-employee relationship. And frankly, most of the provisions are designed to make it easier for unions to organize employees and enhance union leverage at the collective bargaining table. So the legislation contains dozens and dozens of dramatic changes to current law, and it's it's really a piece of legislation, Amy, that includes just about every pro-labor policy initiative and change to the National Labor Relations Act that labor has sought over the past years.
0: So often when I think about labor law, I envision a workplace where a union represents a particular group of employees. Is that the case here, or does this legislation impact non-union employers?
2: Well, Amy, it's a great question because you're right. Often when people think of labor, um, they automatically envision an employer who has a union. That is not the case here. This legislation impacts non-union employers just as significantly, if not more significantly, than union employers. Uh, Peter, I know we both have a couple of our our, our favorite parts of this, this law. What, what, what's your view on some of the most important um, parts of this law that it would affect a non-union employer?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's, it's the right question. Uh, the most significant from my eyes uh, for a non-union employer, first of all, mandatory arbitration agreements that uh, are often private arrangements between employees and their employers are prohibited. Uh, That changes the structure of how employees are working with their employers to resolve disputes. Another one is the joint employment laws that uh, have been part of the discussion uh, in labor law for the past five, six years. This law comes down and and makes it much easier for the National Labor Relations Board or for any other employment uh, agency in the federal or state governments to find companies together to be a joint employer. That impacts franchises, managers, owners, entire industries in the way that they're structured would have to be rethought. That's a pretty big change for non-union employers.
2: Yeah, Peter, and I'll tell you some of the provisions that that concern me quite a bit are the changes to the organizing process itself. So this legislation yeah. would allow unions to organize smaller groups of employees, um, you know, micro units as they're referred to. And, and it also shortens the amount of time between, between the filing for a petition for an election and the actual election. Uh, a lot of our listeners may remember the so-called ambush election rules from the days of the Obama administration. And what those two rules alone do is really make it much easier um, for, for a union to, to get a foothold on, on an employer's business for purposes of, of organizing. So when we're called up, Peter, to ask, what do I do? What, what are you going to tell, tell a non-union employer?
1: Even with the potential change in the law, the way that the PRO Act has started to lay it out, I think that the fundamental principle for employers, particularly non-union employers, remains the same. They have to stay uh, on the cutting edge of what it means to be a great employer in 2021. That means that their management teams need to be trained, not just on labor relations and labor awareness, as many are, but on how to be responsive to their employees, how to have emotional intelligence, how to handle conflict, how to treat people well today is different than perhaps it has been in the past. As you guys know, here we are in 2021, we're almost a full year into the pandemic where the workplace looks so much different today than it did a year ago. Uh, Employers, the good ones, are really staying ahead of that to make sure that You know they're not worth nothing about trying to keep a union out that's not that's not the right strategy and frankly that's not even legal but the best strategy is how do you be a great employer so that employees that are considering union representation don't see the value in it and would rather stay in that direct relationship with their employer that they've had that they know and that they can trust
2: peter i think your your comments are so spot on just a year ago, I imagine that most employers in the in the country were not contemplating a, a vaccine policy. For for example, right. Um, but when when I listen to your comments, which I think are great, the way it, let me know if I'm right. When I boil them down to you know, managers, and I guess all level of management really need to engage their employees, build those strong relationships, and and keep what I guess I would call a a culture of continuous improvement in the workplace.
1: I, I, that's that's right, because whatever the law happens to be, whether it is in favor or encouraging union organizing as the PRO Act is, uh, or whether it stays much more neutral as the current law is intended to be, it all comes down to the person-to-person relationship, the amount of trust that an employer and a manager has with the employees it's working with. No type of law, legal framework or structure is gonna be able to break through a culture of trust that's built in the workplace.
2: I think that's that's absolutely right. Well, we've spent a few minutes talking about the impact on a non-union employer. What are your concerns mm-hmm. with this legislation, the PRO Act on a unionized employer?
1: Yeah. You said it at the beginning in, in your summary of the legislation, it, it gives the, and I, I agree with this, it gives the union a lot more leverage at the bargaining table uh, in, in a couple different ways. My my headlines, obviously there's a lot to work with for the unions uh, in the PRO Act, but my headlines come first in the, the strike. That is the union's ultimate form of leverage is to pull workers out of the facility Uh, while they're in the midst of negotiations or there's a problem that's presented. Currently, the law says that striking workers in many circumstances can be replaced and permanently replaced by other workers that want to come in after them. The PRO Act would take away that option for employers that are being faced with a union strike. That significantly turns up the volume on the impact a strike could have. The other point that I see as being a really big deal and having a significant amount of influence for unions is it hamstrings the right to work laws that are currently in place for a majority of the states. That means that unions are going to be able to collect more dues and those employees that are in right to work states now that don't want to be a member of a union and don't have to pay dues, all of a sudden the PRO Act comes along and says, no matter what, you have to be contributing to the union, even if you don't want to be part of a union. That's a big change and a big moneymaker for, for unions across the United States.
2: I, I agree. And, and I think we, we as, as you and I have discussed, there, there's quite a bit to be concerned about in this legislation. And I just want to hit on one that concerns me. And, and the issue involves a newly organized employer. What this law does is limit the time of negotiations between the employer and the union to 90 days. So what that means is the parties have 90 days to get a first contract. And if they do not reach agreement on that first contract, the the issues are submitted to an arbitrator through interest arbitration. And what that means is that an arbitrator, not the parties, but an arbitrator, will set the terms and conditions of employment on that business which could absolutely be devastating the other issue that comes up is the significant expansion of penalties against employers um, so I think this legislation will also bring about a significant increase in litigation because of the um, damages that that a that an employee can now seek I agree.
0: So if I may jump in, I know that the House passed the PRO Act on March 9th, and it's now headed to the Senate. And as we know, President Biden has pledged to be the strongest labor president you've ever had. Do you see his administration spending its political capital to push for Senate passage? Christian?
2: Well, I'll jump in. Yeah, I'll jump in here, Amy. I I absolutely do uh, believe that the Biden administration will spend some of its political capital. Uh, Just last week, the AFL-CIO Executive Council, which is comprised of more than 50 representatives of the nation's largest unions, came out strongly in favor of the the PRO Act. It also um, came out in favor of abolishing the filibuster rule in order to pass the PRO Act. So I I think that the Biden administration is going to have to um, seriously look at at using its influence to get, if not all, some of this legislation passed.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I think that you're going to see something passed. I, because this is such an extreme change in the state of labor law in the United States, I think it's going to face some really stiff resistance in the Senate, even though the party divide has given the Democratic Party uh, control of of that chamber. I suspect uh, that they're doing what labor does in many of its negotiations and does well. They're going to propose their entire wish list and then if they succeed on half or maybe two thirds of it, uh, then. Great, they see that as a win and even that will be a fundamental change in the way that we do business in labor relations. President Biden is going to put his name behind it and take and be able to show that he is supporting the labor movement. Uh, I, I think given the resistance though that it is going to face in the Senate, it's unlikely that the entire PRO Act is going to pass. But I do believe given the state of politics, at least as they currently are in Washington, that you're going to see certain elements are passing a portion of the PRO Act, part of their wish list is going to make it through and make it to the president's desk because it's an important piece of his, of his constituency.
2: I agree, Peter. And, and we have to remember that even if some of these policies are not uh, passed through the PRO Act, they can certainly be instituted through the regulatory process. Um but, yeah, yeah, politics is a quirky thing as as we've seen. so it'll be interesting to uh, to watch how how this bill advances over the next few weeks. Yeah, I agree. Stay tuned.
0: Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Peter and Christian. This has been a really informative discussion.
2: Amy, it was wonderful to be here. Peter, great to sit down with you and discuss this important piece of legislation. Thanks. a lot of fun. Take care.
0: If you have any questions for Peter or Christian, their contact information is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit BakerLaw.com.